0: Welcome to the Noble Ape podcast, Ape Reality. I'm Tom Barbele, and this evening, a set of questions from Malik Kutash, the Jordanian farmer, Noble Ape expert user, and the person I like to refer to as the Ludwig Wittgenstein of the simulation, primarily due to his long and detailed language intensive emails. The set of questions that I'm going to read from actually came in a an email that was, well, I'm not sure, but it was probably about 4k worth of text at least, or maybe 4k words <laughs> worth of text. Anyway, from that text I extracted the following questions, which I'm going to answer for this podcast. The first question is, and these, some of these questions relate to the Noble Ape manuals, or the, the original manuals, more importantly. Melik asks, do rabbits fall in love? Per previous podcasts, my feeling is that anthropomorphism isn't an evil necessarily particularly with regards to animals that one interacts with on a regular basis i think the certain emotions and traits that we can observe in animals are relatively equivalent to the traits and emotions that we can observe in humans other humans whilst we may never know the true emotions of the other humans as, as we live in our cage our little brain in a vat but seriously rabbits do fall in love and whether or not they fall in love with the same passion that humans fall in love, it is a kind of secondary debate, but I think certainly they do fall in love. The next question relates to how, because the, the landscape and the formulas relating to the landscape and time are hard, why the noble apes are interesting. And the description that I use with regards to this is the idea that Whilst the landscapes are hard, and this is very true, they are generated and they remain constant through the period of the simulation. The apes, the noble apes, are soft in terms of their cognitive processes, in terms of the way they pick up this information, in terms of various factors that affect their movement, and these constantly change. The biology of the simulation is based in quantum mechanics, so it evolves over time, but it is based on the underlying landscape, so that is a kind of semi-soft but the cognitive simulation component of Noble Ape, of the Noble Ape simulation, is very soft. It's malleable. There are things that can occur which aren't easy to predict. In fact, they're very difficult. The emergent properties of the simulation come in large part through the existing cognitive simulation, and what will be interesting with Riddle P and other associated AI engineers is looking at how ApeScript enables people to create their own versions of the Noble Ape cognitive interaction. I think that's going to be very interesting in the future. Is the universe recreating its creator? Now, this is a kind of deeper question, and it comes back to, I think, the first Noble Ape CD, where I have a a line in a song, uh, it's the Noble Ape March, which was funnily enough sampled for the introduction to this podcast, but I digress. When you're at home playing my nation, ask yourself, are you a monkey in a simulation? And rather than kind of ask oneself broader questions about the existence of God, or the lack of existence of God, or whether a deity is necessary or whether a deity is not necessary, the broader question that I have is, are we independent entities? Or are we just part of a continuum? And how is free choice affected by these things? literally are we independent entities or are we just monkeys in a simulation and if you start looking at economic and political factors if you start looking about how labor is used the means of production if you go almost marxist on this you are a monkey in a simulation your primary purpose is to generate income for banks the government other enterprises if you're foolish enough to buy computers computer manufacturers (laughs) And these things mean that irrespective of what one creates or what one does, the net effect is that you're still just generating wealth for the same enterprises. I don't want to be too nihilist with regards to this, but my feeling is that the question is really with regards to personal independence versus being a monkey in a simulation. And I think that's always been my interest with regards to Noble Ape in particular, is that if you can create a set of monkeys in a simulation, do you actually start creating a... a, yeah, you know, properties that come from this, emergent properties? Can one create uh, genetic simulations and understand that whether genetics is implicit? All these kind of questions are broader artificial life questions that I like to kind of posit to myself in some regard. I also like the idea of what the, the primary idea behind noble warfare is in some regard. The idea that, uh, you know, what, what actually happens to genetics over warfare? When I lived in the UK, I would look out over battlefields. I would see places where people had fought for millennia, quite literally. And my thinking was always, what, what are the people that are here now? Because some of these villages in the UK really don't have a lot of people that go through them. And these kind of ideas really percolated in my creation of Noble Warfare. I don't think I could have created something like noble warfare without the background methodology of noble ape. But noble warfare is so far behind what I wanted it to be. But this again is asking a question. You know, what, what can one do with artificial life? Are we monkeys in a simulation? Does this bring us closer to any degree of understanding about anything? Or is it merely just a group of men tinkering in virtual sheds? The next question. Why was I in Malaysia and did I like being in Malaysia? Okay, my mother is a diplomat, and my mother was posted to Malaysia for, I think, four years. And for the first year and a half of her post there, I spent about four and a half months in Malaysia. And it was quite a life-changing experience for me. I did do quite a bit of travelling up to Thailand through rural Malaysia. And it was an experience in self-survival in some regard, but also just seeing a completely different culture and experiencing monkeys in the wild. I think the most profound effect that the Malaysia trip had on me, aside from living in these small towns and moving through them, was seeing monkeys in the wild behaving like humans. It always struck me as very strange that monkeys by their very nature have human qualities, but when you see them purely in the wild, they are almost human. The monkeys on the edge of Kuala Lumpur that were very aggressive the male monkeys that were protecting their areas against the encroachment of development and very violent with regards to the developers in order to protect their troops basically and similarly to see monkeys in Penang living wild and sitting on rocks and moving other smaller rocks I kind of imagined old men in front of a cafe playing checkers it was almost identical in terms of how the monkeys moved This was very powerful to me, and really formative ideas that went into Noble Ape. Did I like Malaysia? I thought it was fascinating. Like is a very strong word. It seems strange to say that about a place. I liked living in the UK. I think the UK is probably one of the better places that I've lived through my life, or Wilmslow as opposed to when I lived in Leicester. But there were aspects of Malaysia that I liked, other aspects I didn't like. Very complicated thing, liking a place, I think. I don't want to reflect too much on that. Melek continues that I got a grant from the Australian Film Commission when I was younger, why did they give me the grant, what did I do in return, did I do any good movies? Well, the Australian Film Commission grant is very interesting. I had been sick for three months at the end of 1996, and... Having emerged from that sickness, I had written a great deal of text which went on to become the original manuals. And I went to Adelaide and met my friend Nick Gaffney, who I've referred to in the previous podcast on Rushkov, the Rushkov article. And Nick Gaffney said, you've got to go and get a grant. And here's the you know, Australian Film Commission. I think his, his group had just gotten a grant with the Australian Film Commission. They were relatively sympathetic, and Nick's close friend, A fellow by the name of Mark Simpson had gone to, I think, work for the AFC, or at least had some connection with the Australian Film Commission, AFC, that's the abbreviation. And I think Mark Simpson was some, either he was a distant relation of mine, or my grandparents and his parents went to church together or something. There was some connection that I had with Mark Simpson, and he was quite passionate about my work, and ultimately he mentored me getting the Australian Film Commission grant after they initially rejected it. And for the Australian Film Commission grant, I produced a whole lot of colour stills and my planar landscape algorithm and the original CD, Isle of the Apes, the audio CD and also all the associated software and text that went into that. And that's what I did for the Australian Film Commission. No good movies came out of it, unfortunately. There's a character, Bo in my notebook. OK, so, Bo Daly was a fellow I knew in Australia, and ironically, Beau... And I had known each other when we were very young. Well, actually, we hadn't known each other at all. Our parents had known each other through a kind of group babysitting club. So my parents had babysit for Bo, and Bo's parents had babysit for me on occasion when I was much younger. And Bo and I met again. I can't remember whether in high school. I think it was my first year at university. And Bo DJ'd at various nightclubs, and had a radio show. And I would regularly go, well, maybe I don't know, five or six times, I'd go and talk on his radio show about what I was doing with initially polymorphic sound, and then moving on to Noble Ape. And Bo and I, I think, DJ'd on occasion in the same nightclubs, and yeah, that's how I knew Bo. And I hear from Bo maybe once every three years now. He's still online, he did various things with some Australian magazines, and he keeps in sporadic contact. I'm one of these people that's relatively easy to keep in touch with in some regard. My work is always online, funnily enough. The notebook says that I developed games. I think the notebook is actually shorthand for the original manual. When I was 13, 14, 15, I developed the Schmuck Quest series of games with my friend Darren Bolton. And the Schmuck Quest series of games really just a mockery of popular culture and actually my own amusing kind of musings at the time. Darren used the experience, I think, in some regard to test his own programming skills, but I was far more interested in narrative and these kind of things and what went into actually making a good game and what went into making a funny game. Funnily enough, I wrote manuals, you may know his opinion here, for the Schmuck Quest series, and the manuals were actually far more popular than the game itself. Well, the game itself was relatively popular. I mean, popular enough, the, the local public servants had Schmuck Quest clubs, and this was a big thing, and when my friend started up a bulletin board, and the fellow who was on the bulletin board at one time noted that I was at my friend's house, he said, Oh, Tom Barbley, you know, he's well known, wow, you know. And he offered his folk band, he had a folk band, you know, playing Schmuck Quest, having a folk band, clearly going together. He had a folk band, and he offered for the folk band to play at any party or whatever I wanted of my choice. And my friend Will was like nudging me saying, don't accept the folk band, we don't need a folk band playing based on Schmuck Quest. So. Unfortunately his folk band never played, I never took him up on the offer. quite sad. Do I see the magic of Noble 8 going into a game? How different would the game be than other games? Would people enjoy this game? This is a very interesting question. Towards the end of the Australian Film Commission grant, I think it was towards the end of the Australian Film Commission grant, I had this idea called Nirvana Invasion originally thought it was called escape from nirvana in my response to to malik but it's called nirvana invasion and the idea was there is, per a previous podcast the original development was based very heavily on vietnam War <laughs> movies and the predator and terminator movies and Arnold schwarzenegger and the idea of nirvana invasion was very similar to the idea of the predator in terms of a bunch of beefed up gunned up guys going into an island to basically take out the noble apes and the noble apes were in fact far smarter and you could either play players noble apes or players the beefed up you know doom guys with their rotating multi-machine guns and this kind of stuff and this was a relatively amusing idea but towards the end of the development in australia i think when i was living in the shed i wrote a very detailed synopsis for a game called the mushroom boy which was about a boy who obsessively created a nuclear device out of old glowing watch parts and things that he was able to construct together and the the primary part of the story or the, with the story that went on to be the game was that basically obsessive youth could create anything including a nuclear device and the whole purpose of the game was once the boy had built the nuclear device he then had to move through this city with the nuclear device and the idea of going through people's backyards and into people's houses and just how he was going to move covertly with this nuclear device constantly being followed by the equivalent of the FBI, I guess, who was chasing this kid with this nuclear bomb. And I got a grant to do this. I mean, prior to September 11th, people were obviously a lot more sympathetic to kids with nuclear bombs. But I got a grant to do it with the Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organisation in Australia, CSIRO. I think that's the correct acronym. And the only reason that they stopped the grant, and this is fascinating, is because I wouldn't share the intellectual property with them. So because they couldn't get this kid wielding a nuclear device as part of their science research intellectual property they said they weren't going to give me the grant and I thought fine I'll keep the intellectual property you can keep the grant it's all it's all very easy okay so what's the chance of noble apes being able to progress and learn this is a very interesting idea and when one creates an artificial life development be it a simulation or something that's meta to that you want to create a certain degree of chaos to see what actually comes from that chaos what emerges out of the chaotic soup so to speak and the use of language i think is critical you have a cognitive simulation which can be reprogrammed through ape script but you then also have a language that the apes can communicate and that can be pre-programmed or defined on the fly or can evolve over time and really it's just dependent on the quality and the kind of ape script that is written my job in creating something like noble ape is purely to facilitate this kind of tinkering and i think it's far more important to allow others to do this kind of tinkering than for me to spend you know too much time putting too much my own presuppositions my own superstitions in some regard into something like the noble ape simulation so for that reason I leave it as open as possible so others can create the Noble Ape learning process in their own image. Give some background history on the antiviral programs I used to write. When I was younger, when I was probably 15, 16, this goes back to the original podcast, I didn't have access to computers. And I I had access to computers through friends' houses, but I didn't own a computer. And the first computer I got was liberally destroyed by my brothers under the instruction of my mother. It was... A family of luddites i'd been mowing lawns for a number of months and had finally saved up for this computer and i went away for two days and i came back and it was decimated they'd even taken out the old winchester hard drive and scored it with a screwdriver i was absolutely devastated about a year after that we got a computer and i wasn't allowed to put floppy disks in the computer because of the risk of them catching viruses, and this facilitated me writing antiviral software. It is not a sexy story. However, having started writing antiviral software I would go into the local university, which had far more viruses than I could ever get my hands onto, and play with the viruses at the local university, bring them home, disassemble them, and basically write antiviral software. So that's the story with regards to how I wrote antiviral software. Do I want to learn more programming languages? This is a very interesting question. I do try and minimize the number of programming languages I know. I try to maximize what I can do with these programming languages, but there are just so many programming languages coming out. Every year there seem to be new programming languages, which are the hottest, latest thing. I keep myself to C, C, and Java, and really they go in that order in terms of my personal preference. Although I do C and Java are interchangeable for certain applications. I do for relaxation like programming in C, and having created ApeScript, and you've got to appreciate I wrote compilers in my late teens as well, and also professionally I've written compilers, but that's another story, and not for the podcast. So I do like compilers, I do like new languages in some regard, but I only need a small subset of that, and my interest is basically maintaining what I'm doing, and also adding way more interesting stuff into what I'm doing and learning languages isn't part of that. And Melek's final question is, how old am I? I am 29. Shocking but true. I turn 30 in the middle of October, and it is going to be a very cold day. I don't really mind getting older. My main concern is the kind of Groundhog Day, deja vu experiences that seem to be kind of reoccurring, but slowly they're dissipating, and I think... Having developed Noble 8 for more than 10 years now, I feel more comfortable about things. Uh, I'm trying to get old gracefully. So, that was Melek Qtash's amazing questions. I'm sure you all have questions for me. Maybe you have comments, maybe you have points of feedback. Tom at NobleApe.com. I will return to a technical podcast in the near future. I just thought I had to answer Melek's questions. Thank you very much, Melek, for sending them in. Passing my regards to Rambo. Rambo is a donkey that Malek owns, but my favourite character in Malek's life is Rambo. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. Look forward to tuning into the next podcast.